It is Mother's Day, and we're thankful for you ladies. We wouldn't be here, right, if it weren't for moms. See if I can get this going. Okay. Yeah, what a role, huh? What a, what a role. And if you think of the role of servants, it's hard to think of uh, folks for whom that title applies more fully, more consistently, more regularly than mothers. So, you know, moms start out as wives, ideally, we hope, start out as wives. So they're already called to be a loving support to guys like me. You know, what a challenge to start with. Less than perfect guys, for sure. So then they conceive... And this is the mind-blowing thing, right? So then they conceive and they carry another person inside their tummy. You know, if guys were having babies, we would be having no babies. There would be no family. None of us would be here. And then they, develop, uh, they deliver, you know, uh, my wife had four daughters by cesarean section and, and other gals would sort of deride her and say, well, you, you really haven't been through the, through the mother thing because you, you got out of the pain through the C-section. And Kathy's like, nah. There's pain, you know, the delivery process is painful during or after. You can't get away from the pain. So the moms, you've got indigestion, you really want to eat, you really don't want to eat for nine months. Then you go through the pain of childbirth so that you can get up all hours of the night to feed babies, change diapers, console the inconsolable. And then they're toddling and you're training them and you're trying to strike the balance right between giving them instruction, helping them to become the person that you believe God wants them to be, some sort of normal, productive human being at least, without sort of overbearing, right? Because you want them to be the person they're uniquely created to be. And just about the time that they can take care of themselves, do their own laundry and dishes, and become interesting, they leave. That's like such a deal. So moms, this this is for you. Thanks for being there for sure. We are in... The series still called God's House. We're in 1 Timothy. And we shift gears a bit this morning. Uh, through this letter, you see Paul, Paul's talking to Timothy, his representative to the church in Ephesus. And so sometimes in the letter, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, this is what you do for others. But this morning, he shifts gears. And the, this morning in chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, he now, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, and this is, these are the things I'm saying to you. This isn't about others so much as now. Tim, these are the things I'm saying to you. And what he says to Timothy is, Timothy, you've got to be a godly servant. You've got to be a godly servant. So he's talked about what those who hold leadership positions in the church should be like, the elders and the deacons. They've got to live exemplary lives. But now Paul tells Timothy, and Timothy, you've got to be exemplary. So the spotlight really shifts in the passage we're in this morning and he's, he's focused on Timothy and Timothy's unique call. His call's a little different. You know, he's told the church what elders and deacons look like, but you know Timothy's not an elder and he's not a deacon. And yet he's called to have this role of influence and leadership in the church because he's Paul's right-hand man. This is a hard position to be in where the authority you have is delegated by someone else. So he's speaking Paul's words, but he's not Paul. And he's supposed to come with authority so that the church recognizes the things that he says. They're actually from God, but he's not the apostle. And so he's got to nuance his relationship with these guys. Another big thing is that he's not very old. 
He's younger. We're guessing less than 40. But to the elders and the deacons who really are older men, he's not one of the older men. He's a little younger. And so he's got to bring a skill set. And, and when Paul tells him what this looks like, he really says, you need to be a godly servant. And if you do that, you can fulfill the call God's got for you there in Ephesus. So he's got to be winsome, wise, humble enough to influence and affect others by his nuanced relationships. He's going to do that by being a godly servant. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6-16. through 16. You can read on the overhead. Your pew Bible is ESV, from which I'm reading also. By the way, guys, this is a lot of verses for me to take on one Sunday. And there's big themes in here that I'm simply not covering. So I'm going to interrupt as we read through just to mention a couple things because there's a couple of verses in here that everybody has questions about we're not going to get to today but i'll give you a very brief uh version of what i what i think they mean starting at verse 6 chapter 4 paul says if you put these things before the brothers and these things are all the things he's already covered so you go back to chapter one god's willing to save any he wants to save all the church is called to prayer the church between brothers and sisters in christ you have these complementary but distinct roles This is what exemplary leadership should look like. And remember last time, it was you're going to have guys rise in your midst and they're going to speak perverse things. He'd warned this same group in Acts 20, uh, he will, that they're going to have guys rise up in their own midst just to draw people after themselves. So he's warned them about false leaders. So he says, Tim, first, when you put the church, your brothers and sisters, in mind of these things, he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That's the theme that we'll come back to. Verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because... We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the verse that throws everybody for a loop. What do you mean God's the Savior of all people, but especially those who believe? Very briefly, if you go back to chapter 2, you remember that of Jesus it said that He is the ransom for everyone. Effectively, He's the only ransom available. He's the ransom for everyone, though all people will not benefit from His ransom process. They're on the cross in His Crucifixion and resurrection. you got something like that here, I think. That is that God is uh, God in Christ. Christ God is the only possibility of a Savior for any on earth. Therefore, He is the Savior of all. But when He says especially those who believe, that saving influence or power is only effective for those who believe. He's the only possible Savior. He's the Savior of all, effective through faith in Jesus. Verse 11 Tim, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Again, youth is relative here. Probably under 40. But set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save 
both yourself and your hearers. The next question is, what do you mean you'll save yourself through your teaching and your hearers? Again, I don't think this has anything to do with the forgiveness of sins and the reception of eternal life any more than in chapter 2 at the end of that chapter when Paul said women are saved through childbearing. It doesn't mean that women having children gives them eternal life. But rather that as Timothy gives himself to the truth, he saves himself from the trouble of false teaching and lifestyles that fall short of the kind of thing God's called us up to. You'll save yourself and you'll save others. So look back at verse 6, if you would, for just a minute. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You know, if you, thinking of Andy's uh, conversation with those guys at camp, if you ask somebody, what's your aspiration? Where do you see yourself in five or ten years? How many people respond to that question? I want to be a servant in five years. I aspire to be a servant, the servant of all. That is not typically what's on the front of our mind, right? I want to be important. I want to be a CEO. I want to own my own business. I want to be at the top. Not the bottom. Servant does not normally rise to the top of our list when we say what's our career, what's our calling, where do we see ourselves in five or ten years. And yet, right, if you're a Christian, you're following a servant Savior. And to aspire to be a servant is a noble aspiration. Now here, Paul says a good servant. And the Greek here is kalos, kalos, And it means beautiful, valuable, and virtuous. Be a virtuous, valuable servant. Uh, Some in this room, maybe today, some certainly in our church, uh, pronounce this word differently. Do you know how they pronounce it? They pronounce it kalos. And it's the place they're employed. And that's what that word means. That's not the way the Greeks pronounce it, but that's anglicized. That's what it means. Virtuous, beautiful, and Paul tells Timothy, you need to be this kind of virtuous, beautiful, thoughtful servant. That's what you should aspire to. Do we aspire to the status, the noble status of servant? Think of this too. The depth or the breadth, the degree to which our role as a servant is important or it has potential to affect the lives of others is not related to to the servant status per se, but it's really related to who we're serving. If you're a servant of the President of the United States, you have a a lofty role, don't you? And if you say, well, I'm I'm an administrator with with this uh, presidency, you'd say, well, that's no small thing. But similar for us, if we aspire nobly to be servants of the servant Savior, guys, this is not a mean thing, it's not a small thing, it's not an insignificant thing. It's a big thing. It's an ennobling thing. It's something we should aspire to, to be a virtuous servant. Uh, When Kathy and I were new to the faith in, in the first church, really we called home here in Topeka, that we were a small church about maybe the size of Lion and Lamb, and there was a Sunday where we had a speaker that was pretty well known nationally and internationally. I think he was with Navigators at the time. He was was an author. He was well known and he was in demand. And yet he ended up at uh, the little church we were a part of because he knew someone there. And so I'm looking forward to hearing this guy. He's older. He's he's gray at the temples at least. He's seasoned. And I'm looking forward to hearing him. And you know, this is seriously, this is three decades later. I still remember what he said. Because here's this important person. And yet when he got up and spoke, it it had nothing to do about him. And his bottom line was this, 
what a thrill, what a privilege it was to simply participate in the kingdom of God. This was a guy who'd been around the block. Everybody loves him, knows him, you know, accolades. But at the end of the day, he said, the only thing that matters, the thing that my heart longs after and rejoices in is that I get to participate in the kingdom of God. I love that. I've still remembered it. Because to serve in the kingdom of God is no mean thing. It's no small thing. It's not insignificant. It's huge that you and I get to participate in the kingdom of God. That was his message. It served him well. I still remember it today. So guys, what does that require? How do you get to be a godly servant, a virtuous kalos servant? How easy is that? So sometimes if you say to someone, I just need you to serve a little, and you think, well, that's easy. I'll just go along and I'll just do whatever I'm told. That is absolutely not what Paul's telling Timothy. The kind of mindset he's got to bring to being a godly servant. Look at verse 6 again. He says, you'll be trained in words of faith and good doctrine. Your mind will be trained. It's nourished. It's formed. It's shaped by words of faith and good doctrine. If you're going to be a good servant, virtuous servant in God's household, the household of faith, You've got to nourish, shape, inform your mind and your thinking through words of faith and good doctrine. Now, if I ask this group this morning, where could we start doing that? Forming our mind on good things, on truth, on faith, on good doctrine? I hope somebody here would say, read your Bible. (laughs) Read your Bible. I have a confession to make. Don't hold it against me. I have not been reading my Bible much this last week. Seriously, I haven't. But I've been listening to my Bible every morning. And we can do that too, right? My smartphone, I get up in the morning, even if I'm sleepy, I've been going to my Bible Gateway site. I turn on my British speaker. He's the the guy that reads it, so I like to listen to him. And I've just been listening to the same 10 Psalms all week. And I've been loving it. I had a time a week or so ago, I woke up just, uh, I won't go into this too much, but I was just in terror. I woke up, I think the enemy was after me. I got... I just thought, i got to get up. i got to go upstairs and pray. I went upstairs and pray. And what's running through my mind? It's these psalms. And so I'm praying these psalms and I'm absolutely delivered from this intense, in the moment, sense of, of ang- uh, angst, fear, terror, because the Scripture's running through my mind and I'm ready to pray. Listening to the Scriptures. Reading the Scriptures. Reading books that remind us of what's timely. Again, the thought here, to be a godly servant, you've got to train, nourish, form your mind on... Words of faith and good doctrine. So when we're reading books too, are the books, or the magazines, the websites, whatever, do they, do they help us in this direction? You've you got to be thoughtful about this, right? There's, we, have, we have crazy opportunities to inform our mind on words of faith and good doctrine today that people in the past never dreamt of. But guys, the flip side is, always, is also true. Look at verse 7. He says you've got to nourish your mind on one hand, but he says, verse 7, avoid irreverent, silly myths. This thought is in this letter. It starts in chapter 1. It, it comes up again in chapter 6. We, we, in fact, don't know specifically what those of, uh, irreverent, silly myths were. But guys, this is not hard to apply for us today, right? You've got to not only train your mind, form your mind on the right things, you've got to avoid the wrong things. So for us today... In the household of faith, there's all kinds of teachings. Very popular uh, teachers in the church of Jesus Christ today. I'm thinking one right now in my mind in Texas. Multi-millionaire who's uh, what we call a modalist. Uh, 
There's not a trinity. There's one God. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is the Spirit. That's lousy doctrine. I don't listen to that guy. I don't recommend his books. The prosperity gospel. I don't believe in it. Christians are called to suffer. You may or may not be wealthy. God bless you if you are. And if Guys, there's nothing spiritually inherently positive about poverty either. I'll just say that. Right? But it's that God has committed Himself, promised Himself to, that everybody has a certain lifestyle. No. That's a silly myth. Absolutely. I'm avoiding those things. But guys, also, and before I start this short list, um, I love technology. I love options. My wife will tell you. She asked me, what do you want for supper? I ask, what are my options? I love options. I love tools. I love, I love TV. I watch my TV. Social media, I'm good with social media. Uh, the internet, I use the internet. I live on my computer. So, nothing against them, okay? But, how much TV and what kind of TV is good for me to, for sound doctrine and words of faith? What am I watching? You know, to me, the great uh, destructive quality of television is not its evil, it's, it's banality. It's I just waste my time on stuff that has absolutely no merit. does nothing for me. Am I, am I careful about avoiding silly myths in the sense of what I watch on TV? Or social media. Guys, social media is a great tool, right? Because you can interact with friends and family. You can stay in contact with them. You can interact with people you'll never meet on earth about social issues. I'm, I'm all for all of this. But social media is also this potentially bottomless pit right about how much time we waste on social media with friends that will never be friends right and the internet too remember when the internet it, it became public and all of a sudden everybody's on it a firefighter came to work one morning he said i was in the internet three hours last night it seemed like 15 minutes well what what did you do what'd you look at i can't remember it all exactly you can just waste your time again they're all tools they all have great positive value but you can sure waste your time too what are we what are we forming our mind with and what are we avoiding? Proverbs 3 and 4, uh, Proverbs uh, has this uh, portrait of life and it goes like this. The godly life is a straight road. And when you're on it, don't turn to the right and don't turn to the left. Don't go off the road right, don't go off the road left. This is that same thought that you've got to nourish your mind, you've got to stay on the road straight ahead and you can err, you can go off in either direction. Don't do that. Stay focused. Verse 7, where it says, train yourself for godliness. This word train is the Greek gymnazo. What words do we get from that? Gym. Gymnasium. Do you know what the root word though for gym, uh, gymnazo means? It means not a place. It means naked. It means nude. No clothing. What's this bringing to mind in the, the folks here in this letter, uh, here in Timothy's, Paul's words to Timothy the first time? What are they thinking? They're thinking, I'm an athlete in training for the games. Because that's what this meant. You remember back then, the Greeks and the Romans would train nude because the thought was, I don't want any encumbrance that keeps me from being able to throw the javelin or heave the discus or, or fight or wrestle, right? So that was the thought. We, there was a message, I think it was the end of last year, beginning of this year, which we talked about bringing an athlete's mentality to life. Well, this is the same thought. You know, the runners today in track and field, they have skin-tight suits. Why is that? They're not naked, but they're as close to naked as they can get. 
because they're bringing the thought, I don't want anything to keep me from being able to perform. That's the mentality, Paul says, related to godliness. You've got to bring an athlete's mindset to your training in godliness. You've got to throw off things that keep you back. You've got to be focused about this. Train, he says. Verse 10 says, towards godliness we're toiling. That means to grow weary, tired, exhausted with effort. Guys, do we bring this kind of mindset to training in godliness? Wearing ourselves out? He says, strive towards godliness. That's the Greek, agonizomai. Do you know what English word we get from agonizomai? Agony. Agony. <clears throat> it means to contend with adversaries, to struggle, strenuous zeal. That same word is used in chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, fight the good fight of faith. Contend, fight, grapple, don't give up. This is all towards the goal of godliness to be a godly, virtuous servant. This requires remarkable dedication, doesn't it? In verse 15, he says, practice and immerse yourself in these things. And then in 16, keep close watch on yourself. You know, an athlete, if I'm training, especially if I'm a wrestler, somebody like a wrestler, I'm on the scales every morning, right? Or I'm checking my body fat or I'm getting my blood taken to see what my blood levels are. I'm watching myself. I've got parameters I need to stay within. That's all of this is about. So Paul tells Timothy, you need to be a virtuous servant. And to do that, you've got to be godly. And to be godly, you've got to focus. You've got to work hard. You've got to form your mind. You've got to do some things. You've got to avoid some things. And it's work. And guys, if you're not working at it, you're not getting there. Absolutely. So what's the goal there? Verse 7, this is all towards godliness. I don't know what comes to your mind when we say the word godliness. What does that mean? Ultimately, for me, it means like Christ. Christ-likeness. But godliness is the Greek eusebeia. If you translate that in Latin, as the Romans did, it's the word piety. So we might think sort of of uh, religious ardor or religious formation perhaps. But listen to what Philip Towner in his commentary on 1 Timothy says. I love this. First is this. The term eusebeia, that Greek term, is the term the Jews used when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew Bible into Greek. And they used it to translate the term the fear of the Lord. That's a key precept in the Old Testament, especially Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, if you read that in the Greek, the, the beginning of wisdom is eusebeia. It's godliness. And so... Towner says this, it's the interplay of the knowledge of God and its observable outworking in behavior that's appropriate to that knowledge. That is, I have some sense of who God is, what He's like, what He requires, and so my life is lived in conformity to that knowledge of God. That's godliness. So we're training, we're focused, we're forming our mind, we're avoiding some things, we're giving ourselves, working hard at other things, so that we live in the fear of the Lord. And again, ultimately that ends up being Christ-likeness. You know that for all of us, God's great work in each of us as an individual, it's to make us more like Christ. We were born with a sinful nature that will never be like Christ. 
Through faith, we're born again. Our sins are forgiven. We're given an absolutely new nature. And God's work in us is to nourish that new nature in us so that we come more and more fully into the image of Christ Himself. That, ultimately, is godliness. If we're going to become more like Christ, Paul says it requires great focus. You've got to nourish your mind on the right things and avoid the wrong things. Uh, if this, there's your study sheet has this, uh, Don Whitney's written a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Godly Life. I've taken a group of guys through it before. It's probably overkill for most of us on what some of the disciplines that you can use to form yourself to be a virtuous servant, but it's a great, great resource. So train vigorously, work hard with focus and energy in order to be godly, to grow in Christ-likeness, to know God's will, and to live it out. How focused are we? Guys, on a good day, how focused are we on this? Does, this? does this sound like your life and mine? Are we are we people that are bringing this kind of focus to the pursuit of Christ-like godliness? Now, I think you're a pretty good-looking group myself. I think you're probably right above average. I think we're, we're, a, we're a group, right? We're committed to the Scriptures, right? And and the church that Kathy and I were in decades ago was like our churches today. So bear with me when I tell a short story. So we're in a home group back in the day, and, and like people in our church, these were, these were committed Christians that we loved spending time with, and those home group times were still highlights in my spiritual walk. A great Bible study, we had great fellowship, we had great prayer time together. There was an occasion in the church in which there had been a real focus on praying, being intentional about prayer, and praying with expectation, praying according to what God was up to, what we thought He was up to. And, and one of the guys in our group, no kidding, uh, in this exasperated moment says, you know, we're supposed to do all this praying now, but they're telling us all the time we've got to read our Bibles. Who's got time to pray? I'm serious. And so I'm sitting there thinking, Wow. That's interesting. So I said, okay. I said, this is a group of 14 people. Serious, committed Christians like us. I said, okay, guys, how many here read their Bible every day? Just put your hand up. In a group of 14, one or two hands went up. I said, well, clearly the issue with prayer is not reading our Bibles. You know, how, how fully devoted to the pursuit of godliness are we? You know, how fully devoted are we? You know, it was like, eh, we're not that fully devoted, are we? We're doing other things. It's not reading our Bibles for sure. Guys, what's the payoff on this? So, so if you and I, if we're devoted to become virtuous servants, and, we're, and to do that, we're training in godliness, what's the payoff? What's the payoff? Paul says in verse 10, because we've set our hope, or our hope is set on the living God. To do something that God commands, friends, is a good thing. Because the God Christians serve and know and live for is the real God. The living God. He's the one that wins. And if you give Him a life of devotion, there's going to be a positive aspect to that when the living God winds all things down and starts them up again. It's going to be worth it. Verse 10. Verse 8, Godliness is a value, Paul says, in every way it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness will benefit you now. Guys, having the fruits of the Spirit in your life, wouldn't all of us love to know more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Wouldn't those all be great to have 
more than we do now, that's a benefit to us. Right now, our growth in godliness is not a deficit. You know, sometimes I think, that for Christians too, the thought of reading our Bible seriously, studiously, regularly, praying regularly, sounds like a, 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 a sentence. Like we're in jail. It's actually the means by which we're liberated to more light. It, it depends on the way we see it, doesn't it? This is why in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Guys, this is what happens. The more you know the Lord, the more you're like, I want more of that. I've had one bite of that pie. I want more, I want more of that pie. In verse 16, you'll assure salvation for yourself and those whom you teach. Don't you want to be able to proactively interact with others in a redemptive way? You know, you and I, whether it's Christians in the faith, brothers and sisters in the household of faith, friends or relatives that we know, don't we want to have, be able to have a, a life-energizing effect in them, on their life? Well, that's what you get. You bring this, you, you help deliver people from things that they don't need to experience. Down things. You know, we live in a culture, and I'm okay with this on one hand, we live in a culture in which we're exercising hard to keep bodies that are going to wear out, get old, wrinkled, and die. We think we're going to keep our bodies at 30 years old forever. It does not happen. But there's a soul inside these bodies that lives forever. Are we giving as much attention to the eternal soul within as we are to the body without? Are we training for godliness or are we just training? Let me uh, close on this thing too. Uh, this, is my, this is my take, by the way, on the ultimate fruit of godliness. You know Christians are going to stand before Jesus at the end of our life and, and 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5 say, He's going to put a torch to the works of our life. We're going to see what was valuable before the eyes of heaven. And he says some of those things are going to burn up because we just did stuff and it wasn't about God. It was just about us and it burns up. But other things, they last. And th those, those represent rewards. I'm convinced, however, if you talk to people and you say, well, I get a crown of righteousness and, and I think, I'm not into crowns. I don't want a crown on my head weighing me down. That doesn't sound like much of a reward. But what if the reward was this? What if the fruit, the eternal fruit of godliness was the ability to know God more fully and therefore to enjoy Him more fully? Do you see where this goes? God is the ultimate, not just the source of pleasure, God is the ultimate pleasure. The eternal fruit of godliness, I'm absolutely convinced, is our ability that we grow in godliness on the earth, that person that's been growing in understanding who God is and what He's like, that goes into eternity. And that formation that you engender here on earth, it enables you forever to know God as He is more fully and therefore to enjoy the delight of all delights, God Himself. That's the eternal benefit of earthly training for godliness. So how do we train for godliness? We focus on Christ. We devote ourselves to knowing the truth of God's Word. And we work humbly and consistently at walking that truth out. So all that's related to, to uh, Timothy's private life or our private life. This is what we're doing. Okay, This, this is how we're developing to be that good servant. What, what does that look like, though, publicly? What was Timothy called to publicly? Uh, verse 6, put these things before the rest of the household of faith. Timothy was a timid guy, which is what you see in 2 Timothy. He's a timid guy. 
And so all of Paul's commands are, Timothy, this is what you got to do. So form yourself this way. That's the person you are and become. But then do these things, Tim. Put these things before the rest of the household of faith. Speak the truth to the church, to the household of faith. Verse 11, command and teach these same principles to others. Can you imagine Tim and Timothy and Paul's telling them, you got to command people this. What? You know, who am I? What? No, you got to command because sometimes people don't, they just think it's you and you say, no, 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 this is what God says. This is what we're called to. Verse 13, be devoted to reading Scripture, exhort and teach. Be devoted. This is all public exposition, teaching, exhortation. Verse 14, I love, don't neglect the gift you were given. This is important too, guys. You know, Paul says here, uh, Tim, a group of elders laid their hands on you and the Holy Spirit spoke and said, this is your gift and call. And the church commissioned you. This isn't just about you. You've got to fulfill God's call on your life and there are people counting on you. They laid hands on you. They're associated with your ministry. Don't let them down. Don't despise. Don't neglect what God has given and called you to. And then verse 16, persist to save yourself and save others. So Tim's service to the church was primarily communicating the truth, often, repeatedly, constantly, and living those truths out in the church family. Uh for time's sake, I'll just mention uh, verse 12 says you're called to be a public example. That means one, don't blow it. When he says don't let, let anyone look down on your youth, verse 12, don't blow it, Tim. Don't give people a reason to diss you. But instead, he says, you be an example. Live like someone else can emulate your behavior. Uh, winding down, just for time's sake, uh, it's easy. If you say, Mike, your role is a servant, this is your niche in life, and I'm looking around at the big wide world and I say, man, that's not very significant. Or moms, you might, while you're wiping a dirty backside or feeding a little baby, or you might feel like, man, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in this backwater. There's nothing going on. Nobody knows here what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not appreciated. It would be easy, would it not? To look at our life in the role of a servant and feel like, I'm just, I'm not getting much done. There's got to be a bigger place for me. Think of this. Don't underestimate the impact your life can have on others in this wide world by simply being a servant. Francis Schaeffer said this. I've quoted it repeatedly because it's one of my favorite quotes. It puts life in context for me. He said, in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. Nobody's insignificant and no place is insignificant if God's in the mix. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under His Lordship in the whole of life, being a good servant, right, trained in godliness, may by God's grace change the flow of our generation. You don't know where the impact of your godly service to others will go. That's in God's hands. There's no limit to it. It was Jesus' role as servant to all that has changed this world forever. And it was His willingness to take the lowest place that raises us up. Listen, in closing, guys, we're in a political season and aspiring public servants, public servants, they're singing their praises to the heavens, aren't they? And Christians are called to sing Christ's praises to Him and to the world. We live in a culture that runs headlong into the pursuit of pleasures not realizing they're missing the pleasure of all pleasures, which is the knowledge of God Himself. 
We have multiplied uncountable options by which to engage our minds, to form our minds and affections, but in doing so, we're often forsaking the source of all truth in the person and the work of Christ and in His Word. So, Jesus came to die for proud sinners like us so we could become godly servants like Him. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. And we pray that You are glorified and honored by us taking on the godly call to servanthood. Lord, would You help all of us to embrace that as Jesus our Savior did. In His name, for His sake, and His glory. Amen.